Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. I host this podcast, and I also host our live variety nights. Every week, we're bringing you a different performer from one of our nights, and our last show was at the Dogstar in Brixton at the end of March. We had comedians, musicians, true storytellers, poets, and live art, creating something tragic for our audience. At Stand Up Tragedy, we want to make you laugh until you cry, and cry until you laugh. On the last episode, Alan Girard told us a true story from his teens. We have another story this week, but this time it's a piece of fiction written especially for stand-up tragedy. We asked Emily Cleaver to write us a short story that could be read aloud on stage. Rising to the challenge, Emily created the story that you're about to hear. A tragic tale of a sea captain, his mate and their ocean voyage. The story is performed by the actor Greg Page. Enter Octopus Winthropii by Emily Cleaver. It is to my dear Winthrop, who has been so faithful and steadfast a companion throughout the course of this struggle for knowledge, that I dedicate this report. I shall ensure that his name is forever linked with that creature of the deep against whom we pitted our wits. My dear friend, In death, if that is indeed where you are, your name shall live on in the immortal temple of science. The facts of our voyage are well known. Our object was nothing less than the study of the mysterious giants of the ocean depths. It has long been my contention that the octopuses of the Pacific Ocean reach more massive sizes than those so far recorded. I shall be proved by the following narrative to have been, dare I say it, right all along. The difficulties we encountered chartering a ship and crew are not worth describing in detail here. Idle superstition has no place in science. The choice of of the Mendocino Trench as our destination and the creature we intended to study there appeared to be the bones of contention with the seamen of San Francisco. I left it to Winthrop to deal with these logistical hitches. This was an error. In his attempts to recruit men, Winthrop spent many evenings in the company of what he termed old sea dogs, listening to their wild stories. A stronger mind might have seen all that talk for what it was, but discernment and intellectual rigour were never Winthrop's key qualities. His later lapses of judgment can, I'm sure, be traced back to that time. My friend said nothing directly to me of this superstitious twaddle, but his numerous entreaties to reconsider our course and his final threat not to embark at all were evidence enough to me of his state of mind. I felt I owed it to him as a friend to ignore comprehensively such nonsense. It was only with a significant extra outlay in wages that we were able to crew our vessel. Winthrop himself was not immune to the lures of a larger remuneration after I reminded him of the costs he would face in putting his son through college. Charles is a pleasant but dull boy, 
who will win no scholarships, although Winthrop remains inordinately dedicated to the futile business of schooling him. Winthrop oversaw the loading of the Tautonaut, my contribution to the exploration of the deeps, so named because of its resemblance in shape to two tortoise shells joined together, can accommodate two men comfortably. Those of my detractors who have doubted the pressures my invention can withstand are proved laughably wrong by what follows. And who knows, I should like to think that even now, through some miracle, poor Winthrop could yet still surface and confound even my conservative estimates with evidence from depths not yet dreamed of. We passed our time on that tedious voyage in pleasant enough pursuits. We were able to make some observations on the more common marine life of those waters using the viewing scope I had designed, a weighted drum with a glass bottom that could be lowered from the side of the ship. In the evenings, I studied Anderson's great work on cephalopod mollusks. Winthrop had also brought his own stack of books. He's usually content to peruse a dog-eared copy of the Sporting Times, but he said he intended to educate himself on the creatures we were hoping to study. But nothing could have pleased me more than to aid him in his quest for knowledge. But he turned down my offer of Tolthorpe's invertebrates and Robinson's Pacific mollusks. Instead, he worked his way through a pile of most unscientific material he had obtained from, from what he termed a local expert in San Francisco. We made our way across the shallows of the continental shelf until we reached that vertiginous point where the ocean floor drops towards the chilly depths of the Mendocino Trench. On our first descent in the Tortonaut, lowered into the deeps by means of a winch, Winthrop and I sat nose to nose on our benches inside. The squeak of the winch and the movement of the waves were soon left far behind. Through the glass of the portholes, three inches thick to withstand the pressure, we watched the sheer cliff that marks the end of the continental shelf slide upwards past us as we descended. The fronds of weeds and speckles of sea anemones and clams gradually thinned out as we descended. Winthrop seemed unimpressed by this wonder of the ocean. Instead, he was fixated on the opposite porthole, the one overlooking the trench. I pointed out to him that there was nothing to see in this direction, the water being strung with curtains of floating matter that made the distance opalescent but none of this persuaded him to detach himself from his porthole. At a depth of 500 feet, a loud cry from Winthrop of, Good God! made me smudge my entry in the logbook. Look at the brute! he cried. I clambered over, and we both peered out. That moment will live in my mind as the pinnacle of my scientific career. It was an octopus of colossal size. At a glance, it was obvious it outstripped any previously recorded measurements by a considerable distance. It was hard to be exact in that murky light, but I estimated it measured at least a hundred feet from its head to the tip of its tentacles. 
I signalled up to the boat uh, by means of a telegraph cable uh, running to the surface that the winch should be stopped. At first, the creature hung like a rippling chandelier some way from us. It had a bulky head and a hard beak set between its eyes. Having established that we were no immediate threat, <laughs> indeed, how could we be when our craft was but the size of a football to it, it came closer. So close, in fact, that it put one of its coal black eyes right up to the porthole for all the world, as if it were peering in at us just as we were peering out at it. I never cease to be amazed by the cunning of the octopus. Many times I have witnessed one take up an empty clamshell and use it like a cudgel to open another shell and take its contents. They're fascinating creatures, as I told Winthrop, although I'm not sure his attention was fully with me. Throughout our long adventures together, from the jungles of Indonesia to the swamps of the Congo, he has always been like a rock at my side. Slow and dense, yes, but firm and immovable in a crisis. He had, until now, been the ideal companion to a man of ideas such as myself, but I can only conclude that something about the deeps of the sea had unmanned him. Tell them to take us up, he said, before it's too late. I was forced to be firm with him. As I explained, though the eye at the portal was somewhat disconcerting, the idea that the octopus was studying us was quite ludicrous. My argument, backed up as it was by scientific anecdote, some of which I was able to reference with citations and even page numbers in places, had curiously little effect on my friend. He raved of dire warnings, of legends and other nonsense. We were thrown from our benches by a sharp jolt and the alarm signals sounded, signifying some problem with the ship on the surface. What, what the hell has it done to us, said Winthrop. And while I was certain his fears were unfounded, I consented to signal the ship to be pulled up. As we began to rise, the octopus released its grip and dived so fast that it appeared to drop away from us like a stone into the murk below. Once we'd been hauled on board by the crew, we found the cause of the alarm. The sharp tug the creature had given the cable had bent one of the spars on the winch, and it had been all the crew could do to pull us up before it snapped. The scientific import of this passed Winthrop by completely. I attempted to interest him in Stark's study of the territorial behaviour of the giant squid, but he announced his intention to stay aboard the ship rather than to help me repair, in his words, that damn death trap and go down again to capture a photograph of the creature, or as he put it, offer ourselves up as fish food. He removed himself to his cabin, where he declared he would stay until the ship turned around and delivered him home to his son. So, for several hours, I worked to repair the spar alone. The next morning, the crew flatly refused to operate the winch equipment. They'd got wind of something of Winthrop's mood and were jittery. What they feared would result from another dive, I do not know but there was muttered talk of bringing bad luck on board, and no entreaty of mine would persuade them. The other obstacle to my research was the photographic equipment. 
Occupied as I was with designing the Tortonaut, I had made it Winthrop's responsibility to master the intricacies of the camera, a temperamental box that requires careful handling to obtain a clear image. Winthrop had become quite proud of his photographs. In fact, his obsession with the equipment had precluded my using it at all, and I admit I did not know how. So it was imperative that he should be enticed from his cabin. Otherwise, I would have no proof to wave beneath the noses of those armchair naturalists back home. After some repeated knocking, Winthrop eventually answered his door to me. Now, for all his faults, I have never in my heart doubted that my friend would stand by my side, and in that, I wasn't wrong. If sometimes a man needs to be gently reminded of his honour by one who loves him, then that does nothing to lessen that honour. Winthrop was no coward, as I said to him. I told him I would not have that despicable word used about him when my report of our voyage and his actions reached the press at home, and of course, the ears of his son. Winthrop is loyal to a point, and at this display of true friendship, he agreed to aid me in the completion of my great task. Of course, the only option was for Winthrop to make the descent alone. It took me some time to persuade him of the scientific sense in this. My task of operating the winch was, if anything, more onerous than his own role. Of course, had I been conversant with the camera equipment, I would gladly have taken his place. The crew watched as I helped Winthrop th through the heavy door of the Tortonaut. His composure was rattled, for he was too preoccupied to shake my outstretched hand, an omission that, were he to read this account, I am sure would make him blush, but I forgave in silence. Breakers over the curved sides of the Tortonaut as it bobbed on the surface. But I was able to see Winthrop's face in the porthole. He signalled to me, raising a clenched fist and shaking it in a salute of comradeship. It is a memory I hold dear, as it was almost the last glimpse I had of him. I can now hear the rhythmic creak of the winch as I turned the wheel to lower Winthrop into the sea. I slowed the descent as he approached the point we had encountered the octopus. Then I locked off the wheel. For some minutes, there was nothing at all to see but the taut cable slapped by the waves. The signal to raise the tautonaut sounded loud and insistent. Delighted that Winthrop had succeeded in his task, I began to turn the winch, but the signal continued to sound, breaking into a, a muddle of short, urgent blasts. Several of the crew ran forward and shoved me roughly aside, setting to the winch for all they were worth. Deprived of my task, I lowered the viewing scope into the water and peered down. Something dark moved around the tautonaut. The monstrous octopus had the vestal in a passionate embrace. Its limbs moved ceaselessly, feeling like a blind man's fingers, and its head bobbed as it busied itself at the base of the cable. The winch squealed, the men pulled, but it was too slow. For a moment, even I lost something of my composure, crying out to pull, for God's sake! But it was too late. The panicked clatter of the alarm was cut short and the men fell backwards onto the deck as the cable went slack and the wheels span.
peering through the scope, I saw the, the mess of tentacles part, and for a moment, Winthrop appeared, white-faced at the upper porthole. Then, the creature loosed some of its writhing limbs, a powerful ripple passed over its body, and it dived, the tautonaut still held in its grip. In seconds, the turquoise depths had obscured them from my view. I find that I have allowed my story to rather overpower the science in this report, but I felt it necessary to explain the absence of data or photographic evidence of the discovery I have named Enteroctopus winthropii. But I hope that omission shall not be of long standing. A new tautonaut is being constructed as I speak by a team of workmen under the supervision of young Charles Winthrop, a boy with an unscientific turn of mind, but eager to follow in the footsteps of his father, my loyal friend, Winthrop. So that was Emily Cleaver's short story, performed by Greg Page. We asked Emily before the show what it was like writing a tragedy. I don't tend to write um, sort of deeply depressing tragedies, so I, I prefer to um, undercut it a little bit. And, and the, so the story I've written tonight is meant to be funny to an extent as well, so um, hopefully people will laugh. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm aiming for. I suppose tragedy has got a, a structure of its own that people know what to expect um, when they're going to something called tragedy. Um, so you can play with that expectation a little bit. Um, you can kind of undercut it or use it for comedy, that people know something bad is going to happen, so you can, you can sort of mess with their heads a little bit. At Stand Up Tragedy, we love bringing lots of different artists together. Bringing together creative people is one of the things that Emily and others do with Liars League, a group which links up writers who want to get their stories performed with actors who want to perform stories. You can listen to other performances from Greg and other stories from Emily and many other collaborations between actors and writers online at www.liarsleague.typepad.com Check them out online and find out when their next live shows at The Phoenix in London will be and go along to one of them and hear some stories. And if you're a writer, they're open for submissions for short stories all the time. You can find more of Emily's writing at emilycleaver.net and she is editor of Litro Online and she produces a podcast for the Litro as well. So you should check out what they're up to at www.litro.co.uk. Litro, a little London literary magazine with a big worldview. Stories transport you. So short story fans and writing fans in general, look out for her name. Over the next few episodes of the Stand Up Tragedy podcast, we'll be bringing you more stories and more kinds of tragedy. We release a new one every Friday, so to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or by downloading the Stitcher Smart Radio app, which is free for you to download to your smartphone. 
even better find out more about the next live night where we're back at the hackney attic on may the 17th by visiting our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk where you'll find information about our previous and future performers as well as details of our upcoming journey to the edinburgh free fringe We'd love to keep you up to date with all things tragic, so follow us on Twitter, where we're at Stand Up For Tragedy, or be our friend on Facebook by searching for Stand Up Tragedy. There's plenty there to keep you going. And now, until next time, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. All of our music was written and recorded by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at radiohuan at yahoo.co.uk. That's radiohwan at yahoo.co.uk. Hold up. 